Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, January 27, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books and the writer of a new play called God Shows Up that begins previews at the Playroom on West 46th Street on Friday night. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway, Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. So uh, we, yeah. while you were away, we got yeah. uh, a press release. You, you know, you didn't even hint at us here that this was uh, is going to happen. So God shows up uh, in a press release in our inboxes. So tell us about God shows up. Well, um, a year and a half ago, Eric Krebs, uh, the, the off-Broadway producer, uh, came to the Theatre World Awards, and he called me the next day and said, listen, I like your sense of humor. I've had an idea for a play for a long time, and I'd like somebody to write it. I think you might be good for it. So here we are a year and a half later, and it is a situation uh, where God shows up uh, on the planet. I won't say much more than that. But I will say that I have a terrific cast and a terrific director, and I'm very pleased with the way it's going. So uh, if you, look, it's right down the street from Hamilton. So if you're in the line and you can't get in, I guarantee you, you can get into our little off-off-off-Broadway uh, theater because this is where Eric tries out things. It's uh, a very tiny space. It's only got about 40 seats. Uh, and that's what he does. If, if things go well there, then it goes to the next step. We'll see if we'll go to the next step. But at this point, uh, he seems to be pleased with uh, what's happening, and I think I am too. But you never know. But you never know. <laughs> um, so uh, did you have dreams of George Burns playing God? or? Uh... <laughs> uh, no, and what's wonderful about uh, – well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, we'll see if it's wonderful. Um, if the play were to go on, anybody could play God. I, I even see a child playing God. I think that would really be great. Anyway, so uh, you know, what do we know? You know, Nobody's going to say anybody who's playing God is miscast You know, because we don't know. So we'll see what happens. Very exciting. So uh, you have your hands full, and uh, we look to hear many more reports about God Shows Up. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, let's start off with uh, Peter got down to the American Airlines Theater to see True West. Uh, Tell us uh, what's happening over at True West. Well, you know, uh, there's been this tendency 
uh, of some theaters to not give out a playbill until the show is over. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's, um, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, I think it's a very good idea for True West. And I'll tell you why. Because there's information – I'm going to be very vague about this because I don't want to spoil anything. But let's just say there's information in the program that will make uh, early arrival readers wish they hadn't discovered one detail. You know, if if you have no prior knowledge – about a certain aspect of Sam Shepard's play, you'll gasp at a point where otherwise you won't be surprised if you've looked at your playbill. Um, so I could really tell Wednesday afternoon uh, that uh, the people who knew what was coming and the people who didn't. And uh, I, I heard sporadic ohs through the audience, but not everybody went, oh, because a lot of people knew what was going on. So, so if you go to True West, and, and, and a visit isn't a bad idea, you know, keep that playbill closed. Um, talk to the person next to you, start a conversation. Uh, you'll be doing both of you a favor. Anyway, um, now you might say, well, you know, um, if I don't look at the playbill, uh, I won't know uh, where we are or what time period we're in. Well, you'll know what time period you're in immediately because when the lights come up, there's the actor playing Austin, Paul Dano, um, at a typewriter. So we already know that it's a while ago because nobody uses a typewriter today. And uh, he's working on a screenplay that he's very excited about. He really thinks he's got something good. Unfortunately, his brother has come to visit him. And this guy, I mean, I'm telling you, he looks like the wrath of God and he probably is the wrath of God. You don't mess with this guy. If you offer him breakfast, he says, I can take care of myself. If you offer him money, he gets he's ready to punch you out because uh, he sees it as an implication that he's destitute and unsuccessful. So it's really, in a way, a Cain and Abel story in the sense that we, we have two brothers who have absolutely nothing in common. Austin is Ivy League educated. That comes up. We get the impression, uh, well, we don't get the impression, but we wouldn't be a bit surprised if Lee, the other brother, were a high school dropout. But this is a ferocious guy, and Ethan Hawke plays him brilliantly. Now, for the first act of the play, you feel bad for Paul Dano saying, oh, he's got to play this wimpy character. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, he's the straight man and uh, Ethan Hawke gets all the opportunities to be blustery and angry and, and, you know, a fuse ready to blow and all that goes with that. But in the second act, the roles are reversed. Now, you might say, well, how, in, in fact, can uh, this wimpy guy get that angry? It's not a case of anger. It's something else. And again, I'm being purposely vague, <clears throat> though I guess a lot of you know True West because it's been around um, close to 40 years. But just in case you don't, um, let me say that uh, Sam Shepard found a very good way of making a uh, simple way, but a very good way of making um, Austin be a, 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 a problem, let's put it that way. Now, what what makes the role of reversal? Well, um, a Hollywood executive comes to the house to uh, hear Austin's ideas. Now, this strikes me as a little false because I don't know that if somebody who hasn't had great success, that's established. I mean, this is like Austin's big chance we really get the impression he hasn't done well. And I don't see a Hollywood executive coming out to somebody's house. Uh, I see him behind a big desk in his 
big chair, big leather chair with his feet on his desk while the poor writer is sitting in this chair, not uh, a, a anything that resembles what um, the exec has, <clears throat> you know, pitching his idea. So you say, well, you know, they want to save a set. And then you think, well, you know, we're used to people coming down right to the lip of the stage, a pool of light and two chairs. You know, they could do that. <clears throat> but there's a bigger reason for that. And the reason is that um, even though Lee was supposed to stay away, he comes back. Now, he comes back with a television. And the reason he comes back with a television is because he stole it. And this is another thing that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, yes, I understand that both brothers envy each other for having what the other doesn't. We really have a situation here of brains versus brawn. That's what it is. Okay. And <clears throat> many people with brains, needless to say, wish they had brawn, and many people with brawn wish they had brains. So I understand that dynamic. However, once we start getting into illegalities, and we're talking about theft here, I always wonder why, even though we're talking about brothers, since Austin wants to get rid of Lee, will you please go away? Why he doesn't, this is his chance to call the cops and say, okay, this guy's stealing. But it doesn't work out that way. Now, that may not bother anybody else, but it has bothered me for close to 40 years with True West. That said, this is a terrific production, just magnificent. Um, and I'm very glad, very, very, very glad that um, Paul Dano gets the chance to shine in the second act, which is mostly about him and uh, what he's feeling. And he has a good right to feel what he feels. So um, I do believe uh, that all the flaws <laughs> happening, um, that uh, James McDonald has really done a fine job with directing them. Uh, and uh, it is certainly worth seeing. It's a ferocious play. But keep that playbill closed. It's uh, funny you should mention about the uh, keeping the playbill closed because there was an article in the New York Times this week uh, by Laura Collins Hughes saying, I want my playbill, why programs are n uh, no mere extra. So, uh, Michael, how, how do you feel about the playbill, the playbill situation? Do you enjoy getting your playbill before? Yes, overall, I wholeheartedly agree with the article in the Times. I uh, I was just discussing it with some friends, and we we all agree. Also, uh, there are some exceptions, some special cases. I think Peter has identified one, and I think I know what he means. Uh, but and we have had. Uh, I'm sure we can think of other. Uh, shows where playbills or programs were specifically not handed out before the show for that specific reason, to avoid spoilers. But I think that only applies to a, a, a relatively small number of shows. And I think uh, in all other cases that it's really something that's that's owed to an audience and it makes the experience so much better and uh, really helps uh, each audience member if he or she wants to, you know, just learn a little bit more about what they're about to see before they see it and also during intermission to peruse the the, uh, the programs for bios and credits of, of actors. Uh, but there's a, also there can be a lot of pertinent information in a in a playbill or program that that helps you to understand the play. Um, uh, ironically, one of the places that has uh, been leading this charge of not having pro printed programs is CSC. Uh -huh. and, and one of the shows 
Um, well, at least one of the shows uh, uh, that I experienced it at uh, fairly recently uh, was a show that is hardly ever done, Carmen Jones. So uh, so people who are going to see it, many of them presumably would be unfamiliar with the, um, the characters. And in that case, um, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of double casting and also uh, doubling. And so if you went into that not knowing anything about it and without a printed program uh as a friend of mine did uh he was really very frustrated because it took him uh there were places during the show where he really could not figure out who was supposed to be who and who was going on and then on top of all of those things that particular production happened to have um several people uh who i think were not necessarily theater regulars in the cast including uh the male lead so uh here you have here you're watching this person you've never seen before you're wondering who he is uh, uh and then you have these other characters and you're not sure who they are and it's all because uh of, of quote unquote going green although that's probably not really what the real reason is it's probably just to save some money and to kind of nickel and dime uh, an audience that it's in many cases is paying a lot of money for tickets anyway. So I think it's a very annoying, um, a very, very annoying uh, trend. Uh, the transport group is another uh, company that I've been going after for a while for their lack of printed programs. And it'll be interesting to see if, um, if, if the times article perhaps maybe uh, leads to a retread uh, on, on this subject because I, I I would like to see that. I think that would be a good. Well, in- interestingly enough, um, when I saw the article, I also saw that there were 47 comments at that point in time oh. when I caught up with it. And I looked at the comments and they were overwhelmingly, please don't get rid of playbills. Um, from a writer's standpoint, by the way, I find them very valuable to look up a person's early credits. In other words, um, well, let me be specific. Uh, Bernadette Peters, when she was in Summer Stock, did some show, and uh, there she is just starting out, and she talked about the fact, well, she wrote about the fact that um, she once was in a production of Gypsy playing mm. Dainty June, and um, the, the actress got sick um, in the second act, and she had to play Agnes in the second act, and that's very interesting, because Rose would pick somebody like Dainty June to be in the show. Um, so, to find out early information about people is really something, because, as, believe me, Bernadette Peters doesn't mention that in her bio now, because she has so much else. So, so for historical uh, value, it really is something. And every now and then, I find myself going back to see an article that I remember. You know, uh, gee, let's see. Okay, so that was, yeah, that had to be in '79. It probably was around March. Okay, what was opening at that time, et cetera. So it's very valuable there. But I have most. I won't say I have all. But I have most of the playbills from uh, the shows I've seen, and they inhabit my cabinets where everybody else has dishes and glasses and um, <clears throat> wine op- uh, cork st- stoppers. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do believe, however, that playbills days are numbered. I don't – by the way, I'm not talking about the company. I'm talking about the printed product uh, because I just see everything going that way. Um, we're, we're in a digital world, and um, kids growing up today with digital things are not going to see the value, I think, as uh, as much as we old-timers do. Well, I really hope that's not true. And, oh, yeah, and, me too. And, and there is evidence to the contrary because we also Good. talked about – well, I mean, aside from everything, we talked about the revival of interest in vinyl LPs. Yes. and. 
and the packaging that comes with them and how apparently uh, a whole new generation really loves that. They love that tactile element that is lost in in digital transmission. And, and, you know, uh, nobody uh, appreciates the digital world more than I do. It's it's incredibly helpful when you want to get information really quickly and, uh, you know, could you just type something in and, and press return? Uh, sure, sure. so, uh, so please don't understand me, but I, I think there well, is I a don't place. Think we do. yeah. I don't think we yeah. misunderstand. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there is the whole, uh, West end theater scene where there's a program that you I can know, purchase, mm-hmm. but you don't get anything when you go to see most West end shows. Um, and uh, but uh, on the flip side, you brought up the corporation playbill that uh, you know their bread and butter is in print. It's not really in digital right now, as far as I understand. Uh, and um, I just saw Colin Quinn's uh, Red State Blue State, where there was no playbill, and I thought to myself, and I, they had they made up their own sort of uh, you know program. But it wasn't a playbill per se, and you you noticed the quality difference immediately. And I thought to myself, I thought that the Minute Elaine was a playbill house that they had a you know they had playbills all the time. But uh, I I couldn't really remember the last time I saw a playbill at mm. Minute Elaine. Um, but this is very interesting. Uh, and, and well, there's yeah. another factor too, <laughs> and that is uh, so many people use these when they go to the stage door. For yeah. autographs. Mm-hmm. So well, I yes. Guess, so, so I guess what's going to happen as time goes on is it's going to be like uh, these new electronic things. When you go into a store, they make you sign on the electronic thing. <laughs> you know, maybe that's what will happen. Yeah, there'll, maybe. There'll, there'll, be, there'll be a space for autographs where they can align here with the little X at the beginning uh, saying sign here. So uh, so that's another thing, too. A lot of people really use those playbills for that purpose. So it's going to be sad to see that go, too. I yes. think that you'll see if the print playbill becomes less of a ubiquitous thing, I think you'll see other companies jump oh, into the fray here to oh, create playbills. I think a uh, company like Today Ticks or something like that, yeah, as a um, bonus yeah, yeah, feature, yeah. if you use Today Ticks, you could uh, get a playbill or ShowScore will create their own playbills or maybe there'll be a, you know, playbills been marketing to uh, schools and small theaters and things like that, create your own playbill online. Uh, and you can print it out at home and things like that. So I- I'm sure that there'll be um, nature or pores of vacuum. And uh, if there is <laughs> if there is uh, a-, a want for the playbills, but they're no longer there, I think we'll we'll see it come out. And uh, and uh, in, in you know, fiery phoenix rise from the ashes in, in another form. Let's move forward into our next review. Michael, you got a chance to get to the Argyle Theater where you saw their production of Spring Awakening. Tell us about this. I would love to tell you about it. I uh, hesitated to go for a few reasons. I, I love Spring Awakening, but because of the subject matter, uh, I, I do find it um, – I don't want to say difficult to sit through, but I mean it's a very, very sad, tragic story, and it takes a lot out of you. So uh, – and, and plus I had really just a few months ago seen an excellent production at Wagner College, and I don't – it's so – it's not the type of show that I feel – the need to see uh, every few months uh, because of the the emotional draining aspect of it. Um, so I 
thought that I might skip it, but then I uh, I thought, well, you know, what if it's really good? And I do like to support the Argyle because I think it's a really great new theater uh, in Babylon Village. And so I I went uh, and I am so glad because it was the best production of the show that I have seen thus far. Uh, wow. they, they just did an amazing, amazing production of it with a new director who I think that this person is going to be directing on Broadway. Uh, I hope so um, soon. His name is Matthew Ernest. And just from the beginning, from the first moment, there were really, really interesting new uh, concepts and staging ideas. Uh, and that proceeded through the entire show. Um, one thing he did, which I, I'm not even 100% sure I agree with it, but it was so interesting. The first image we see, um, uh, fans of Spring Awakening well know that the time, uh, the action is theoretically set in Germany in 1891, I believe. But, um, and it's a story about these young people, these teenagers and their parents and how the parents uh, refuse to uh, give the, the, their children the proper sex education that they need for their lives. Uh, and th that results in, in tragedy. It's also about um, uh, peer pressure. It's about uh, a, a horrible bullying of, of a child by his parent for not living up to his academic potential. Uh, it's about um, uh, uh, sexual abuse of children by parents and uh, it's about abortion and it's really incredible that all of this was originally written about in, in 1890 or 91 by a German playwright uh, named Frank Wedekind and it was so so controversial at that time that uh, it took 15 years for the um, for the play to first be produced. And in fact, I'm, I'm, I can't remember at the moment now if, if that was, if 1891 was the first production or when it was first written. But anyway, the point is that this was decades before those kinds of subjects began to be dealt with in the theater. Um, anyway, uh, so it's, the action is theoretically set in Germany in 1891, but the score, uh, of course, uh, is very, very modern uh, indie rock uh, type uh, music and uh, and really uh, interesting lyrics with tons of modern references and 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 colloquialisms. Uh, music by Duncan Sheik, book and lyrics by Stephen Sater. So you have this really uh, fascinating piece to begin with where the action is set in one era but the music is of another era and it and it's tremendously effective in communicating how some things never change uh you know you know um and th and it does that beautifully without hitting you over the head with it uh, i i think that the concept to begin with is is so great uh to have the uh the the characters theoretically going about their business in 
in Germany in 1891, but meanwhile they're singing all this indie rock music, and and usually there are uh, usually the costuming is more or less very traditional, but then there again the uh, the lyrics and the music is is very modern, and it just creates a, a, a wonderful, very very thrilling and interesting dichotomy there. Um, but uh, what Matthew Ernest did in this case, for example, is the first image we see is of Wendela Bergman's mother uh, cleaning the house with a vacuum cleaner that looked more or less, you know, like a modern vacuum cleaner. Uh, and then later in the show, uh, we have a scene where Moritz comes home, Moritz Stiefel comes home too uh, terrified uh, because he has to tell his father that he is failing out of school. And uh, in this production, when Moritz comes home, the father is sitting there watching TV. Uh, and I think they had, you could hear the audio, and I think it was a German uh, soccer program that was on. Uh, so, so Matthew Ernest decided to mix it up even further, and it just worked brilliantly, uh, along with incredibly great, be, uh, fantastic choreography by Sarah Bryans, uh, the highlight of which was um, uh, Spring Awakening ends very tragically, but then there is a an epilogue, I suppose you would call it, called The Song of Purple Summer. And it can feel like an afterthought uh, because of the way that it's written and constructed. But in this case, it was absolutely one of the highlights of the show because it was choreographed and staged in a way that reminded me very much of the Somewhere Ballet in West Side Story, uh, where after all of this really sad tragic plot uh, uh, that we have seen and, and including the deaths of at least two major characters, uh, suddenly we kind of see this alternate universe with the, uh, with the parents dancing with the children and everyone happy and, and in a kind of a sunlit, sunlit landscape uh, to show that how things could be if people would just try to understand and talk to each other more and and not be ruled by fear in their lives. So this was uh, such a great production that I think I, I really may try to go back and see it again. Uh, the entire cast was phenomenal, but I have to single out, uh, well, a few people. First of all, the um, all of the adult women were played by Monica Bell and the adult men by John Anker Bow. And they were so phenomenal that they, uh, they elevated the whole thing. Uh, I would not have thought that the quality of the performance of the people in the adult roles would have made this much difference or could have made this much difference, but it absolutely did. And for what it's worth, um, it's this, this may interest some people, uh, the Argyle usually has a mix of equity and non-equity people. In this case, Monica Bell is equity, but John Anker Bow is not. But he is one of the finest actors I've seen on stage recently. So I think that you should catch up with him in this show and or in something else. Um, the, the three nominal leads of the show were all fantastic. Uh, Melchior was played by Alex Joseph Grayson, uh, and he is a, an actor of color. Uh, he appears to be African-American. Um, I don't always think that uh, that sort of casting works, but in this case, 
I think it was brilliant because, uh, as I said, because of the modern slash uh, uh, historic construct of the show, uh, th- there is no uh, there is no uh, nod towards. I mean, there, there's no necessity for any kind of realistic casting in the case in in the terms of anyone in the audience saying oh well you know there would not have been a black uh, melchior in germany at that time so that doesn't apply at all and it just we were left with a, just a really sensitive beautifully acted and gorgeously sung performance um vendla is cory fair uh, sorry, Corey Farbstein. And she uh, also, uh, first of all, <laughs> uh, is very beautiful to look at and very young looking. And that really helped to uh, hammer home the tragedy of this girl who just wants to know, uh, you know, what she needs to know and asks her mother, begs her mother in the first scene to tell her what she needs to know about sex. And the mother just can't bring herself to do it. And that leads to horrible, horrible tragedy. Um, and then Moritz uh, was David Thomas Cronin. It is a wonderfully written role to begin with. Absolutely heartbreaking. This this sort of misfit kid who um, is, as I said, terrified of failing out of school because his father is obviously abusive to him and is going to almost kill him if he does fail out of school. Uh, and in a way, that's what happens. Um, but this performance was certainly equivalent to uh, the, the other performances of Moritz that I have seen, including the great... John Gallagher, who created the role on Broadway, and uh, the it was it was truly heartbreaking. Um, the scene where, well, first of all, the two scenes where Moritz had to tell his father that he was failing out of school, and then uh, his later scene uh, in which he's preparing to commit suicide and is temporarily uh, interrupted in that uh, by. Ilsa, played by Emily Nash in this production, who also did a great job. Um, so he is temporarily interrupted, but then she goes off and he goes through with it, and it's just heartbreaking. So um, I cannot say enough about this Spring Awakening. I, uh, Mark and Dylan Perlman, who run the theater, should be very, very, very proud. It's not the kind of show you necessarily do to bring in huge numbers of audiences, but it's, uh, but that's exactly who should be there. Uh, it should be full at every show. It's just a beautiful production of a, of a life changing musical. That's great to hear. Uh, so another very good review out of the, uh, Argyle theater in Babylon. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing spring awakening as well. So we'll back and report to that. Uh, to you again on that. Over the last couple of weeks, we uh, talked a number of times about Choir Boy. I finally caught up with it this week. Uh, There's not much more I can add to it that it hasn't already been said in in the previous reviews, other than it's been extended again this week. Uh, They extended to March 10th, so you have a chance to get to see it, and you should go see it. Uh, I wanted to ask Peter and Michael, uh, in the previous incarnations of Choir Boy or anything, have do you know if there's a cast recording or plans for a cast recording or what an interesting question. I don't, I had, don't think I've read anything to that effect. 
Uh, if it if it if there were a cast recording, I think it would have to be uh, aggrandized from what actually happens on stage. In other words, we only uh, hear snippets yeah. of songs. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, there was a a show many years ago called "Say Darling," where they only had snippets of songs, and what they decided to do was actually flesh them out and do a real album. Uh, many of us thought that "Say Darling" when we got the album was a real musical. It wasn't. It was a play with songs, just as Choir Boy is. And um, unfortunately, um, the day when cast albums sold like crazy. And uh, say, Darling seemed like a good idea for expansion. Um, I'm afraid those days are gone. And as a result, I I don't imagine they're going to spend the money to uh, train those boys to do the songs from soup to nuts and uh, have it happen. But one of the great thrills of the show is hearing that music. Those kids are really good at that. Also, I think although there is quite a lot of music, I, I don't imagine it would be enough for a relief. Even if they performed each song complete, I'm not sure it would be enough for uh, the length of a a normal cast album. So let me uh, propose this to you. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Incredibly diverse and talented group of men up on that stage. Uh, I I can't – I was blown away by the production Mm -hmm. itself, but Mm -hmm. the voices up there, amazing Mm. in themselves – you know, uh, similar how Daniel Reichardt and the original Jersey Boys went out on tour and made a whole life uh, of going out mm. to sing those type of things. Mm-hmm. I could I could see that uh, this cast of Choir Boy um, could go out and do a very similar thing where they could tour around the world singing whatever. And, and the Choir Boy stuff could be the basis of it. But I was thinking to myself while watching this that Choir Boy – it seems to very much lend itself to becoming a uh, film or a Netflix type of thing. And, oh, absolutely. Mm. Uh, and uh, and this could be the basis of that. And because it is a play with music, I you know I didn't remember or I didn't anticipate that there being a choreographer for a play with music. But Camille mm. Brown uh, yeah, yeah. choreography was just absolutely wonderful in this play with music and uh, also we heard this week that Camille Brown is going to be choreographing Magic Mike mm-hmm. um, and um, so that's uh, is it is it Magic Mike or is it the uh, Michael Jackson it. it was no it's the it, oh is that what you mean oh yeah no yeah, um, I'm, and uh, I'm not sure My, Michael Jackson <laughs> is uh <laughs> Who's doing the Michael Jackson one? But it's not it, – it, Camille Brown's doing Magic Mike. That's right. Uh, but we had both of those announcements this week. But um, Choir Boy extended again through March 10th. Uh, go check it out. Uh, I foresee this as being a great property to be filmed and uh, and what a cast. What a great – Well, you mentioned – is Netflix the one that's doing American Sun? That came out this week Yes, too. American yeah. Sun is going to be done by Netflix. Wonderful. Uh, and we talked about on, – uh, on Today on Broadway, we talked about uh, – uh, you know, where uh, uh, American Sun being filmed for Netflix stored, sort of crossing into the realm of what Broadway HD has been doing. And it, would it be possible that Netflix would buy Broadway HD? Ah. You know? Uh, 
Good point. Also, um, it's nice to hear that the National Theatre production of All About Eve, which I am yeah. very interested in, and I know I'm not going to get to London by May 11th when it closes, um, is going to be uh, telecast too, and I'm, I'll am i be there. You know, I'm very interested to see what Ivo Van Hove does with uh, All About Eve. <laughs> it may not be All About Eve, considering what, mm. <laughs> what he does. <you> know? <laughs> Who knows? It might be about Birdie. I mean, you, know, <laughs> you never know. Uh, anything could happen with that property uh, but uh, yeah I'm very glad these things are happening yeah very glad we stepping about, back uh, stepping back to what oh we're stepping back for a moment uh, if if the choir boys do tour which is a great idea James <laughs> mm. uh, but I, I mean I don't know if it's yeah. going to happen but if it did happen it wouldn't happen anytime soon because as I think we mentioned ain't last week uh, what's that ain't too proud Yes, Jeremy Pope, uh, who has the lead in Choir Boy, is going directly into the lead in Ain't Too Proud. Ain't Too Proud? Is that yeah. the title? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I always have to think twice. Um, the Temptations musical on Broadway. And in fact, uh, it looks like at this point that he's going to be rehearsing one while still in the other. Because, and that's why uh, Choir Boy could only extend to a certain date. Uh, yeah, Jeremy Pope is actually leaving the production. Somebody's taking over uh, oh, during really? the extension. Uh, during the extension. Oh. Let me... mm. Choir Boy, let me see what they said mm. here in the official press release. Choir Boy extends at MTC. Um... Jeremy Pope will depart the production on Sunday, February 24th to join the cast of Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations on Broadway. Jonathan Burke will take over the role of Ferris, uh, Ferris? Ferris, Jonathan Young, for the remaining two weeks of the run. So, yeah, so Jeremy Pope is leaving. Um, I guess. Uh, oh, well, t- thanks t- for yeah. noting that because I, I, I think I missed that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, and to clean up the other thing, Christopher, Christopher Whedon's doing the Michael Jackson thing. Wilden. Wilden. Uh, uh, Wilden, mm-hmm. yeah, um, is doing the Michael Jackson thing. So, yeah, I mean, Camille Brown choreography for Magic Mike um, coming up as well next season. So, Peter, you mm-hmm. headed down to the coca-cola stage at the alliance theater which is see that's ever what it's after. called <laughs> try to try to get a pepsi in atlanta good luck no uh, no <laughs> you cannot <laughs> it's, you'd have an easier time finding out what the secret formula is of coca-cola <laughs> to get a pepsi in atlanta but that's another story yeah I, I was in atlanta for the junior theater festival which is um just such a marvel <clears throat> Um, I, this, I think this is my eighth time. The first time I went, there were 3,300 people. This year, there was 6,529 people. Not all kids. They're parents, chaperones, teachers, what have you. But imagine that. Imagine that. And the kids had a phenomenal time because um, Frozen is going to be available to, in a junior version. You Really, in a couple of months, you'll be able to put Frozen on in your school or your community theater or whatever. The junior version, only an hour long. But... Casey Levy came down to to do Let It Go. I mean, they actually let her go from the production on Broadway and put in an understudy so she could come down and entertain these kids. And they did the thing with the dress and everything. It was really, really something. But what also happened is I went to the Alliance Theater to see Ever After, which I had seen a paper mill and thought was okay. 
it was okay, you know. Um, <clears throat> but you've got to admire Zena Goldrich and Murray, Marcy Heisler because this was nearly four years ago when they had their production at the Paper Mill Playhouse. And um, <sighs> partly because it was awfully literal to the movie and partly because there was a unit set that was very dull. It seemed to be the same set they had used uh, for The Hunchback of Notre Dame. But I'm telling you, it didn't even seem like the same show. And um, even though they couldn't make the move 23 miles to Broadway, I think they're ready to make the 880-mile journey to Broadway now um, because it's really so much better and so wonderfully done. Uh, Now, uh, you may know the film. It's a terrific movie, um, and it answers a few questions that were not answered by Charles Perrault when he wrote the original Cinderella story. Now, to be fair... Uh, who knows how many translations there are and uh, adaptations of this story, but the ones I could find of Cinderella did not tell us her real name. So the screenwriters, the three screenwriters who wrote Ever After, decided to call her Danielle. Okay, that fine, that's one thing. The translations in, uh, of stories I've seen from Peralt um, indicate that the father was always on the scene, but he was terribly henpecked. And that's why he didn't stand up for his daughter. And halfway through the story, he just disappears. You don't hear about him at all. Now, again, who knows? It's been a long time since this story was written. It's probably been corrupted. But anyway, the screenwriters um, decided to give a reason why the father isn't around. No sooner does he remarry uh, a very cold woman who has two daughters from a previous marriage seconds after he arrives home he has to go on a trip and unfortunately he he only gets a few hundred feet on his horse before he has a heart attack and dies and this is really a very powerful thing because after all here is cinderella uh well danielle left with this sudden uh, instant stepmother whom she's known for 14 seconds. And boy, you know, uh, <laughs> this stepmother really wants to promote her own daughter, even though she has two, to be the next princess because she knows that um, the prince is looking for a bride. Um, <clears throat> what's really nice about this uh, adaptation is that Marsley Heisler has made it as much his story, Prince Henry's story, as Danielle's. Uh, it's a very good idea because early on, she brings in Prince Henry, who has been um, set up in an arranged marriage, which she has no interest in doing because there has to be an alliance between France and Spain. I didn't mention that uh, the story takes place in France, but it does. And he doesn't want any part of it. I wish someone had asked me, you know. And, well, the thing is, his father does give him some leeway because the father was in an arranged marriage. And you should see these two bicker. I mean, they bicker all I love you. This is not a show that advocates arranged marriages, believe me. So the father says, um, I'll give you five days to find a bride. The kid is upset. Five days. And the (laughs) father says, that's five days more than I had. And it's true. You know, so so now uh, the prince is giving a ball. Okay. Now, there's a very clever thing that Heisler has added. Um, I believe she did. Um, when um, the older daughter is Marguerite, and she's the favored daughter. And you really feel for Jacqueline, who's the unfavored daughter. Um, the Baroness Rod Miller is her name, has no interest in her because she's a little overweight and she wears glasses and she really believes Marguerite is her best chance. So she ignores Jacqueline tremendously. Heisler doesn't. 
She's given her more to do than in the movie, and in fact, even finds a way to um, to uh, involve her in a plot that I think will satisfy audiences tremendously well. Uh, that said, everything is riding on the older daughter. So essentially, we have Rose and June and Louise here. And um, <clears throat> what happens is that um, Marguerite smartly says, I am not wearing blue because I know that that's the prince's favorite color, and I know that everybody's going to show up in blue. And in the very next scene at the ball, you do see <laughs> Davy blue, teal blue, powder egg blue, Robin's all the, all those colors of blue. And Marguerite does stand out because she's wearing a, a yellow dress. In a strange way, you know, when you see all the ladies in blue, and we're in France, it's a variation on how to succeed Paris original. You know, I mean. Uh, so anyway, um, Marguerite comes in a golden dress, and she looks great, and she's a pretty girl, and all that goes with that. However. She's no different from the other women in the way that she handles the prince. You know, she's obsequious, you know, your majesty, and laughs at every joke and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Danielle does get to go to the ball, and it's a very clever way that she gets there. It doesn't involve pumpkins or godmothers or anything like that. It didn't in the movie either. But Heisler has found a different way to get her into a dress, which I think is a very smart way of doing it. And... Uh, she gets to go to the ball, and she tells the prince what's on her mind. She's not afraid to do that, especially the fact that she talks about that poor people are poor people um, who often go into crime because they have no other alternative. And perhaps if you educated these people and started a university and let these people go to college, you know, maybe they'd wind up to be fine people. But you know, they, they're just boxed into a corner where they can do nothing. Nothing but steal. You can't really blame them under the terrible circumstances that you have caused. Um, Sierra Bartos plays the role, and she is terrific because early in the show, she has a wonderful song called Who Needs Love, in which she talks about the fact that she's rationalizing. She wants love, but she doesn't think anybody who's in her position could possibly get it. Who would want her? You know, this this chambermaid, I mean, the servant, who would want her? And so she rationalizes, and there's a very nice lyric in which she says, a knight in shining armor would only be one more thing to dust. Um, a very smart line. And again, we know she's lying to herself, and she knows she's lying to herself. Um, <clears throat> so she'd love to get the prince, but of course the problem is that there she is under false circumstances. She pretends that she's something she isn't. For all the talk about being honest with him about his problems, she's not honest with um, him on who she is. And that, of course, involves a complication. Wonderful music by Zena Goldrich, a beautiful ballad uh, that I think is called I Remember. The thing is that um, the, there was no song listing in the program, so I'm guessing. But uh, I'm not guessing that this is beautiful music. It really is. And the lyrics are so sharp and intelligent and well-crafted. Just great. So it really is quite, quite, quite a fine production. Um, and um, I really have to commend uh, the Alliance Theater for spending money and allowing realistic sets as opposed to a unit set. You know, that was really something. It was um, extraordinarily well designed. Um, and uh, Susan V. Booth is the director, and she did a wonderful job. She was very smart in choosing Tim Rogan. Uh, to be Prince Henry. I think he's the most dashing young noble we've seen since Robert Goulet's Get Lancelot. Now, you know who also shows up in the show, as it did in the movie, as in the movie too? Leonardo da Vinci. 
But here he's more interesting because he really is a matchmaker. He's really interested in setting up the prince and uh, Danielle. He thinks they're right for each other. <clears throat> and there is a point where the prince is not interested when he finds the truth. But Leonardo really convinces him. Otherwise, David Garrison has a wonderful, quiet authority as Leonardo. Terrific, terrific performance. And again, additions by Heisler are very smart in which we see that Leonardo is smart enough to say that he knows very little about the world. Um, because when you're an authority on something, you realize how little you know about everything else in the world. So that's a very smart perception, and she did really well. Jenny Ashman is Marguerite. Rachel Flynn is Jacqueline. Todd Buonopane, one of my favorite actors, um, has a role as a captain, and he's capital in it. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, And I have to mention Rachel York. Um, now, in the movie, uh, 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 Angelica Houston uh, plays her mean as can be from the moment, mean as a snake. Uh, what we get here from Rachel York is a bit of pretentiousness at the beginning rather than uh, just nonstop evil, that uh, she really is a social climber. She becomes evil. In fact, she even has a moment that um, makes her more evil, a moment that in the, the film was handled by, um, by Marguerite, but here it's handled by um, the Baroness Rodmilla, and I'm telling you, it's a very powerful moment, a very powerful moment, and it was very smart of Heisler to give it to her. I'm telling you, these two women have gone back to square one, right back to the drawing board the way rocket scientists do when the, the rocket doesn't fly. I am telling you, I am so much in awe of what they have accomplished and what the Alliance Theater has given them. And I really believe that indeed this show is raring to go, ready to come to Broadway. And I hope, hope, hope it does. That's so good to hear uh, I, because the paper mill production that I saw a number of years ago uh, definitely had some potential there. Uh, I'm looking at the Alliance Theater website. There are 32 people in the cast here. It's enormous. Yeah, yeah, yeah really. They spent money, no question. Um, yeah. and, uh, <clears throat> and God love them for doing it. You know, uh, it, 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 it really is something. And I, I, I really have to say that I didn't expect, considering what happened to Paper Mill, that it would be as magnificent as it is. That really is good news because I, too, had, had similar feelings about the paper mill production. I thought the show had a lot of great stuff in it and was very professional and quite an excellent cast, uh, but it just didn't quite gel. So sometimes people keep working and sometimes it, they get it, you know. Mm -hmm. Peter, let's go back uh, and talk about the Junior Theater Festival for a second. Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm, you've talked about how much it has grown to 6,000-plus this year. Mm -hmm. We might point out that this is just one of two Junior Theater Festivals this I, year. Mm -hmm. um, with This is G, the Junior Theater Festival East, and Junior, mm -hmm. Junior Theater Festival West is in Sacramento, California, in uh, the right. uh, second week of February. So... I mean, this is an enormous festival. I mean, we're talking about three, four times the size of BroadwayCon. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and it, it, it's, I'm glad you brought this up because really, uh, imagine how many more people would be in Atlanta if there weren't one in California. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> that's really something. So, I mean, in, in a way, the um, the statistic of six five two nine is a false one because there are more people involved than that. Got to so, figure uh, it's going to hit ten thousand. 
It, I, I have no idea what's going on in Sacramento. I've never been, but I'm telling you, it is just wonderful to see all these middle school kids. Uh, oh, by the way, <laughs> sub, sometimes they're not just middle school. Sometimes these are after school programs or weekend programs. <laughs> so it was so great to see a production of Elf Junior. We're Butter the Elf. I actually asked him. <clears throat> I said, how tall are you? He said, six, four. <laughs> and Santa Claus was like three foot two. It was so great you know, to see those two interact. <laughs> This little peanut playing uh, Santa Claus. I just had the the best time doing it. Um, the most popular show, of course, was Mary Poppins Jr. Uh, Fifteen schools did that. 133 schools, I think, uh, participated. I may be off a, a little there. Maybe it's 123. Anyway, uh, 15 did Mary Poppins Jr. But one did Finian's Rainbow Jr. God love him. I mean, mm. I thought that was really tremendous, you know, because frankly – Phineas Rainbow still has a lot to say, and these people knew enough to keep in the, you know, they're only 15-minute sections that they do here. Yes, junior shows are an hour, but here you do 15 minutes, and um, then adjudicators tell you what you've done right, wrong, and what have you. But anyway, in that 15 minutes, they kept the part about immigrants. So Phineas Rainbow is still very, very apt, and I, I my hat is off to the company that did it. Um, so um, it's, it's really wonderful uh, to have so many kids see that there are so many kids like them who care about what they care about. That's what's so wonderful. Everybody wants the same thing. Everybody's on the same page. Um, it's so wonderful to see kids congratulate each other. They know how hard it is to do what they do. And as a result, the applause and the support is just magnificent. Um, I do say that I've probably lost 40 percent of my hearing since I've gone to these things <laughs> because the kids scream so much, especially I'm sorry to say when anybody holds a note for mm. an important period of time, mm. uh, they scream right at the halfway point. And I don't know if we'll ever get rid of that habit. But um, anyway, that's that's the downside of the Junior Theater Festival. And that's the only downside for me because it's just wonderful to see uh, people making good on their talent and their opportunities. All right. I am looking at the clock here, and we have a hard out very soon, so let's keep moving forward here. Michael, you saw Frankie James Grande at Green Room 42. Tell us, how is Frankie these days? Oh, he was great. He, uh, I'm sure many of our listeners know him because he's quite the uh, Renaissance person. Uh, he's a dancer, actor, singer, producer, television host, and YouTube personality. Uh, probably most famous uh, for his participation on TV in Celebrity Big Brother uh, and uh, a Big Brother 16. Uh, but he also has said he's produced some Broadway shows and he uh, had his credits as a performer on Broadway include Mamma Mia and Rock of Ages and uh, uh, Clueless um, I'm sorry, um, Cruel Intentions the musical off-Broadway but he did an amazing show at the Green Room 42 and I've been saying if they had been able to harness the energy he put out in this show they could have used it to power the lighting and the sound system he was just incredible uh, just p- putting it out there, uh, dancing up a storm and, 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 and just giving a thousand percent. And the audience was packed. It was the largest audience I have ever seen at the green room 42. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely packed. Uh, the, everyone was 
with him every second. He had great guest artists. Uh, the program was uh, the musical program was heavy on pop, as you might imagine. He did a share song. He did a Celine Dion song in French. He sang "I Wanted That Way," uh, that old <laughs> chestnut, and "Don't Stop Believing." Um, but there was. Uh, a Broadway component to the show too, although contemporary Broadway, he uh, did a great performance of today for you from rent, which uh, as we speak, I I guess we're about to Uh, see the, the live TV version. Um, So uh, I'm sure that um, many of us are looking forward to that. Uh, And Frankie mentioned that, of course, uh, that that's that that was coming up. Uh, And then he also did a, he produced, I'm not sure why he did it this way, but he produced a little video of Seasons of Love, um, of him, him singing the lead in Seasons of Love with uh, his with his backup singers and, and band. And that was really beautiful. Uh, and then he also did uh, Sweet Transvestite uh, from Rocky Horror, which uh, would uh, I think he said he, he did that role somewhere in that entire role somewhere. And that is a perfect role for him. And then he did um, Vilcomen from Cabaret. Uh, there again, I, I don't think he's played the MC in, in Cabaret, but that would be another really fantastic part. So uh, I'm very glad I went. And uh, he he definitely has a lot of fans for all of his um, all of his various endeavors. Uh, his half sister Ariana Grande was not in the house, uh, but his mother was, and so uh, I'm sure she was very, very proud because it was quite a show. So that's awesome. Uh, I have a link to all of uh, Frankie's um, comings and goings at his uh, fan website there, and I did not realize how how plugged in he is to everything else oh it's amazing and aside from everything he has a um he co-founded a non-profit arts organization called broadway in south africa uh which uh, people travel to south africa to teach performance arts to disadvantaged youth Uh, and he did that for seven years um and then the charity merged with build on but he yeah his philanthropic philanthropic activities and his producing credits <laughs> um read up on it just yeah. google him google him he's really quite an amazing person all right so uh i got a chance to get down to the minetaline theater to see colin quinn red state blue state which is uh colin's uh, one man show um which uh, Peter and Michael are going to see and we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks. Um, My take on this show was uh, it was Colin Quinn's uh, commentary about how we need to bring uh, red states and blue states, Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives all together for the benefit of of the United States itself. Um, uh, When I saw the show, I saw the show earlier this week, uh, pretty early into the run, it seemed as though that uh, it hadn't gelled yet, so I'm interested to see what Peter and Michael come back and, and say. Colin was sort of stumbling through some of the sections, mm. uh, which was – and I, I'm a fan of Colin's. I've seen him in, in other, in, in other uh, stand-up things. Also, he didn't uh, really establish um, uh, why – the, the the why in the show why did he want to say this and why was he going out and saying it and certainly we know that 
uh, we've just lived through a shutdown of a government and uh, for 30 some odd days and a possibility of another shutdown government coming up in, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, certainly there's a, a, a divide in America right now, a 51-49 divide or 50-50 divide. Uh, and uh, this show could have spoken to that, but it... It didn't for me. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm interested to hear what other people think about it, even uh, if you're a listener that's going to see Colin Quinn, Red State, Blue State, down at the Minetta Lane Theater. Uh, please, you know, uh, get in contact with us, uh, Twitter, Facebook, email, however, uh, uh, leave us a voicemail and uh, tell us what you thought about this show. Michael, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Beatles, the Beatles, four people couldn't get along and broke up. The Kingston Trio, three people. <laughs> Couldn't get along. And one person left the group. They had to replace him. Simon and Garfunkel, Martin and Lewis, two people couldn't get along, broke up. I don't know how 300 plus million people can get along if (laughs) if these little groups can. So I will be interested to hear what Colin Quinn has to say. But it's going to be quite a task she's taking on here to to give us any way of saying that we're going to uh, come together. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if we, if, if I live long enough, I won't be surprised if I see two separate United States. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm interested to hear what you guys, uh, think about when, uh, when mm-hmm. you see it, let's, uh, move forward into the final, uh, review of the morning. Uh, Michael, you saw whirlwind at the wild project. So, uh, tell us about whirlwind. Yes, I, I uh, don't want to provide a formal review because they were nice enough to let me into the second preview uh, because I interviewed the director, Dan Amboyer, a fine actor who is now uh, – this is his directorial debut. Uh, so I, I, I won't provide a full-length review, but every honestly, everything I have to say is positive anyway. Uh, this is a really – Funny uh, and intriguing new play by Jordan Jaffe, who apparently has written a series of uh, what he calls energy plays, uh, plays on the subject of energy and environment. And and, uh, and this is a, a story about a company that uh, that provides clean energy through wind turbines. So you think, oh, great, you know, they're the good guys. But unfortunately, what has happened is that um, it seems like uh, birds are being killed in large amounts by flying into these wind turbines. So this fellow, uh, this environmental activist uh, played by Christian Kahn, he shows up, uh, he's he's planning to really um, – Call this company on the carpet, and you know, go to the press, etc., uh, because of of what's happening to these birds. Uh, but he he first he goes to the company to you know to to see to give them the option of of doing something, which would essentially be closing down the turbines, uh, or you know, moving them somewhere or, or whatever, or whatever, something that would be incredibly uh, costly. So, uh, so he uh, shows up and he uh, has a meeting with an executive at the company, uh, Beth, played by Anna Purna Suram. And they, um, 
they have their little contretemps. But what, what but what happens in the meantime is that those two develop this very strong attraction to each other. So there's all this stuff going on, the, the conflict over the environmental issue and the fact that the, the people who are the good guys, uh, you know, have wound up creating this very unfortunate situation for all these these birds who are dying. And uh, in the meantime, uh, these two uh, are uh, these two people are on opposite sides, but but they're really, really kind of feeling very, very drawn to each other. And then uh, there's a, one more character in the show uh, played by Johnny Wu, and he is the boss. Uh, he is Beth's boss, and he uh, also has an interest in her, so that that's another level on top of everything. It, it, it might... Um, I mean, it's the kind of play that certainly could have gone the other way and been a, a drama um, with maybe a, a very, uh, very dark ending. But the emphasis is definitely on comedy here. And I have to ha- hand it to the playwright. I'm, I'm going to have to check out some of his other stuff, Jordan Jaffe, because it's not easy to write that kind of a really dark comedy um, and have it be so, so funny. Uh, so congratulations to the cast, uh, those three people I mentioned, and also to Dan M. Boyer as the director. All right. So that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com and subscribe. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you listen to finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, from Michael, and me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today are on the show page at broaderradio.com as well. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yep. Uh, The question was, um, what producing artistic director of a theater company that centers on musicals has the same name as a character in a Strauss and Adams musical? Hmm. And the answer is Jim Morgan, who heads the York Theater Company, which does new musicals and vintage ones, such as three Alan J. Lerner shows they have coming up in their Musicals in Mufti series. Jim Morgan is the name of the scientist who seeks Lois Lane's hand in It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. Carrie Winslow was the first to get it, followed by Tony Janicki, Ingrid Gammerman, uh, Deb Popple, Zachary Longstreet, Brigadude, and Fred Abramowitz. This week's question... A person we'll call performer number one received a Tony in a show that won a Best Musical Tony, too. When performer number one left that show, a person we'll call performer number two took over. Someone who by then had also won a Tony, obviously for a different show. But Now, performer number one eventually did a movie musical and performed a song whose title just happens to be the same as the name of the first Broadway show performer number two did. Who are the performers and what are the musicals? I'm going to need to diagram that. (laughs) So (laughs) if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
And if at times I wait 